Um, so hire has always been relatively efficient, but only for certain segments of our population. There's actually a projected shortfall in terms of degree attainment. Our economy will fall short an estimated 5 million workers by, by next year, by 2020. But it's still arguably, and with evidence, the most reliable vehicle for social mobility that we have. This is Supply Change, and I'm Ron Volpe. consider higher education as a supply chain, what would its output be? There are a lot of really important supply chains to consider in higher education, but one of the more interesting ones is the supply chain of students entering into the university and all the challenges and complexity that comes with that. I met with the University of Pennsylvania's Dr. Ross Akins to discuss the implications of tuition, inequality, admission hurdles, and medication on the supply chain of higher ed. Uh, today, we're fortunate to have with us Dr. Ross Aikens. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't we start um, with, uh, you know, as I think about supply chains in education, I think of a lot of things. Um, and one of the first questions I had is, if you look at higher education as a supply chain, who is the end consumer? What is, what is the end consumer product that, that you guys deliver? That's a really, um, it's an interesting question. I got to say that, you know, having listened to this podcast a little bit, I kind of at first chafed and struggled a little bit when thinking about how is higher education a supply chain or what that would be. Uh, I mean, at the surface level, you know, there are over 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, and they do need, you know, actual supplies to function, you know, things like lab equipment, books, food, physical facilities. I mean, many of these institutions basically resemble small cities, and there are Surely vendors like Aramark, Microsoft, Nike, uh, and so on that supply them. So, so certainly higher ed relies on supply chains in terms of procurement and, you know, how I've heard it used here on this podcast before. But, but higher ed is a vastly different industry than others. And so when I think about the products coming out of colleges and universities, you know, I, I think you could take this a few ways. Um, the, the first is that one really important supply chain is of degrees. And this is what we call degree attainment meaning like, you know, associate's degrees, bachelor degrees, uh, the degrees your kids are hopefully on their way to earning. Uh, maybe those include advanced degrees like MDs, JDs, PhDs, and so on. You know, these are these are important indicators of the development of human capital that are, are produced in higher ed. Uh, in other words, people go to college, they earn those degrees, and then they enter various professions to become doctor, lawyer, and, and so on. And so this, so degree attainment is a super important supply chain function of higher ed. Um, but but then it's also important to understand that you know there's more that happens in college and universities than just like degrees. Like these aren't just degree factories. They produce vast amounts of knowledge, which is actually measurable in terms of grants, patents, you know, uh, nerdy stuff like journal articles published and other sort of tangible researchy things. But that's kind of a, a complicated, amorphous supply chain to think of. So so really for me, like the easiest you know supply chain of higher ed for me to wrap my head around was the supply of students into the university uh, and all the challenges and, and complexity that comes with that. And, um, you know, I, I should probably disclaim here that, you know, in this altruistic field of higher ed, we, we often don't like to talk about, you know, people or students in these sort of like, you know, marketing terms, you know, like students are, are simply products or consumers. It, you know, can seem a little bit reductive or, or maybe even offensive to some. But, you know, hey, on the other hand, there's, there's no doubt that this consumer mentality has seeped into higher education, and especially given the huge exorbitant cost of tuition. Like I, I can't blame students and families for thinking of higher ed this way. So, 
So really to answer your original question, you know, there's a lot of ways to think about supply chains in higher ed, but I think that degree attainment and at the student level, as in like the supply of students into higher ed, I think those are the, some of the more thought-provoking and challenging ways that, that I see it. You, look, you started in student admissions. Um, what was that like um, and how has that evolved over the last few years? Absolutely. I mean, I went to college myself, which is, I guess, when I entered the supply chain of higher ed, just to back up before I got into working as a admissions professional. And that was sort of my process for getting there. And that's the process for, for a lot of families and students. It really starts in high school. Um, it actually even starts before that in middle school. And some economists and researchers might argue it could start even earlier than that. Uh, and that's an important point because the pipeline to higher ed runs through K-12 through schools. And, you know, without an equitable working K through 12 education system, students might not be adequately prepared for higher ed, which is a huge problem. But for, yeah, for me personally, a lot of my insight into how college access works or how it doesn't work comes from uh, those few years I spent working in undergrad admissions at, at USC. Um, and I, I also, it's worth noting, had admissions responsibilities at a small grad program at Carnegie Mellon University. And I, currently a, a big part of my role as a faculty is in graduate admissions here at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. So, so yeah, working in undergrad admissions at a select university um, like USC was really sort of my peek behind the curtain. Like, oh, so that's how this whole thing works. And, and I don't know if you, you have any perspective on this, but um, does that process, um, admissions process, look different, vary as you go from university to university? Is it pretty? Is it quite common across all universities? You know, I, I've got data points only for my two mm -hmm. younger kids and I've got one, I'm oh, sorry, my two older kids, but my third child is about ready and looking at colleges now. So it does seem like sometimes uh, there's some differential in terms of how the process works. So I don't know if you have any perspective on that. I have some. I mean, it, it does. It's wildly diverse depending on, I'd say, mostly the size of the institution, uh, USC. And I know this is the, the case at Penn undergrad admissions as well. Uh, where you have very large admissions operations reading tens of thousands of applications that, uh, you know, actually th those numbers grow over the years as more and more students. It's not that there are more students entering college, but they're applying to more colleges, which creates a, a bigger volume. And so, yeah, I mean, at, at Penn, SC, you know, I can't talk too much about the, the nuances of those systems, but versus a liberal arts college, like I, I went to Occidental College and, you know, when I would talk to uh, a lot of admissions colleagues as a professional at various conferences and whatnot, they would talk about how we actually have committees. You know, we get down a room with a stack of applications, sometimes at the time, at least, it's going to make me feel old, paper applications, pass them around and actually debate the merits of, of certain candidates. I, I think smaller institutions or more regional institutions may have a more intimate process, but, um, you know, it's, it's a real challenge to sift through, you know, 300, I'm sorry, like maybe 30, 40,000 applications, some of these large institutions. I think UCLA used to have the most, maybe still, but um, it's it's a gargantuan task and it, it varies at, along lines of selectivity too. But the competition nowadays just seems a lot tougher and the stress that kind of falls back on students, et cetera, and families seems a lot tougher. So yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's, I don't know if, that, if you have any comment on that, but it's I just my visceral reaction to the admissions process since I'm going through it right now with a, with the daughter is it's really tough and it's really stressful. So, well, I mean, I think these experiences are are, are wildly different for families across the country. I mean, I, I don't know much about your, your background, Ron, but I, I grew up near Stanford University, um, Palo Alto, California. I, I went to public high school, but it was a public high school with a lot of knowledge about college going. Um, I came from a family. You know, my my mother attended college. Her her father went to college. So you know, I think that 
families like mine, maybe yours and maybe others, uh, aren't like the majority of, of families in the United States in, in terms of households where there may not be a lot of stress or, stress or pressure to attend college because there, there might be a, a critical lack of knowledge about the college going process, which is you know, really um, a problem that we can you know, understand a little bit as we go and, or talk about more as we go on. But um, yeah, it, it really varies from, from certain communities in terms of you know, where that stress comes from. It, it is true, though, that I, I don't doubt it feels that way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, college students are applying to more universities. And so that's why admissions, um, uh, I guess, admit numbers, um, selectivity is going uh, up in that admit rates are going down. Um, but mostly that's just because of the volume of applications that individual students, the average of applications submitted per student, not by any sort of sweeping demographic changes or any sort of systemic pressure that it's all getting harder necessarily. Um, you know, changing gears a little bit. So obviously right now, everybody has seen some of the um, scandals that are out there in the admissions space um, with people buying their way into schools for their kids. So how, you know, I know. Relate. You know, I want to get into that a bit. Uh, and my first question um, is: you know, How vital is transparency in admissions um, to, mm. to ensure we have an equitable supply chain of higher education, if you will? Oh yeah, I like the word equity. I want to um, put a pin in that too. But it, it's really important. I mean, more than transparency, kind of as I mentioned earlier, if you're looking to engage in the college admissions process, you first need to to know it's even there and that it's something that could perhaps help you and help your future. Uh, I mean, college admissions may seem transparent to some families and students uh, or opaque to others, but but the problem is that a lot of people who could benefit greatly by attending our college or university either don't know how to engage with the process or are, are more likely really turned away by the prohibitive costs of attendance. Uh, I mean, it's not like um, a lot of these these families have never heard of college. It's more that a, a huge number of American households are, are working paycheck to paycheck to sort of even fathom taking on tens of or even hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in debt or loans. It, it just seems like an impossible thing to justify. Um, and sure, you know, there are loans, scholarships, resources available. That requires a lot of help to navigate. So so back to, to transparency or, or the lack thereof, I mean, just a few examples that come to mind. I know that a lot of institutions have these net price calculators uh, on their websites, which, which when done properly can be a really useful tool to enhance the transparency around costs. But but some of them are are just kind of um, de deceptive or, or bogus or just plain wrong. Uh, and there's no regulation on these net price calculators. But there's been some interesting studies by us and my colleagues about that. Um, you may have heard of the FAFSA, the, the free application for federal mm -hmm. student yep. aid. Yeah, you may have filled it out a few times. I mean, it's it's a complicated form. Um, and not to mention that that college counselors, the high school level, are, are in really short supply. I mean, we're talking thousand to one student to counselor ratios or worse at many public high schools across the country. Um, in addition, you know, this, this pertains a little bit to uh, recent scandals that come to mind, but standardized tests are also intimidating. They also cost money. And in all of this, college especially, tuition, it, the college is expensive. And these costs are, are as, as you mentioned, not always transparent. From a parent's perspective, it feels a bit like a black box, um, the admissions process, and you plug in, you send out the forms, and then somebody, some answers come back. But is transparency something you think will drive more, look to drive greater amounts of transparency? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely, I mean, institutions generally consider themselves to be um, pro-social actors and you know, forces of good. Um, I think if you were to ask admissions offices, 
you know, they want to be as transparent as as possible. Uh, you know, it's important to have a, a process that people can can trust. Um, but I think that a lot of the problem in terms of students getting into college isn't really around transparency. It's it's partly about academic preparation. Um, it's partly about affordability. Um, you know, I, I I think that the knowledge around that getting into certain communities maybe isn't um, a, an issue of the process or or institutions themselves not being as forthright as they could with with critical information, but it, it might just be about more more communication going to where it needs to go in order to um, educate the parts of our our country that that uh, or the segments of our population that that need. Uh, more degree attainment in order to, for us to be economically competitive uh, as a country. Uh, you know, and I think you said it really well. I think that, um, and I think it, it ties into my next question because students obviously experience stress in higher education for a lot of reasons. Um, and in your, you know, the work you do, you obviously have good line of sight to that. So what's that like? And, you know, is there, has there been research done to identify the types of stress students are, are finding upon them? I mean, absolutely. There's, yeah, you're definitely entering my wheelhouse. So I'll try to keep it pretty, um, pretty tight here. But it's important to sort of define what we're talking about when we talk about mental health and stress, you know, things like depression, anxiety, trauma, uh, debt, financial burdens, sleep problems, you know, addiction to alcohol and other drugs, or even non substances of abuse, things like gaming, gambling, sex, pornography, addiction, procrastination, perfectionism. I mean, all of these things are, are sort of mental health pitfalls that are uh, sometimes abundant in college. Um, and I, we even have research into how abundant. I mean, there's just to sort of establish a baseline. Um, there's this survey, the, the American College Health Association has a, a national college health assessment survey that a lot of institutions participate in. And, you know, f- first of all, about nine a little over 9% of students are entering college with psychiatric conditions, um, not, not including ADHD. That's about 8% uh, on its own. But you know, And then students are asked about dozens of factors, uh, stress-related, that affect them academically uh, within the past 12 months. Number one was stress, which may seem pretty broad. About 32% of students reported that, followed by about a quarter of students reported anxiety within the past year, 20% with sleep difficulties, depression at 17% and, and so on. And that, that represents a lot of students who encounter some kind of struggle. And all this is important because we want to retain students in this, this supply chain. It's important to retain and not have students you know, drop out. That, that's a big concern. Um, but then there's also a, a particularly meaningful question that the survey asks, which is about how students report feeling within the past year. And about 53% of students uh, report feeling things were hopeless. More women than men, but 53 is the average. 85% said they felt overwhelmed, which you may think, you know, college is hard. It should be um, overwhelming, or not, maybe not overwhelming, but properly whelming. <laughs> you know, and then about, I think 63 felt lonely. And 41 said that it was difficult. It, they felt so depressed that it was difficult to function. And here's where it gets even more somber. Uh, 11.3% of students seriously considered suicide. And almost 2%, 1.9% 1.9% had actual suicide attempt. So if you take two out of every 100 students at any given institution, um, that represents a, a real mental health crisis. And a lot of people use that, that C word crisis pretty loosely, but that's, that's an important thing. Yep. Um, you know, these are important issues that can bubble up and take huge tolls on campus communities. But you know, if, just to, to keep going a little bit, I think that the issue that I worry about the most in the immediate future, and I'm framing this in, in part as a mental health issue, relates to sort of inclusion. Um, 
and I, I don't know about you know you or, or some of our colleagues, but in higher ed, almost all of us were on a campus somewhere in 2015 and in 2016. And, and overall, those were not awesome or harmonious years in, in higher ed, where hundreds of campuses held walkouts, teach-ins, uh, other demonstrations where, where students were organizing, making demands. I mean, this is the biggest wave of activism uh, in the country since the 1960s. And these issues, uh, demands focused on social justice, diversity, inclusion. Um, and and uh, did some researchers did do some great work to compile and look at these lists of student demands. Uh, from leadership, they are demanding acknowledgement of history of racism, uh, demands for serving as advocates for diversity and, and social justice. Um, but of these, these various categories of demands of what they wanted from their institutions, uh, there was five categories. There's legal services, career services, mental health services, activities, and then academic services. And the number one demand from students was, was mental health services. So I'm not suggesting there's a, a mental health deficit at all among those students. But but what to me this says is that our students are saying that this this climate for inclusion, particularly among those students who have historically been left out or or who are currently underrepresented, you know these are the students who who we need most to attract and to retain in this supply chain. They've been they've been woefully neglected. So I, I think that message was sent loud and clear. And and, and not to gratuitously use the term supply chain, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. But I love you, it. <laughs> do you, do you think that? Um, do you think there's a dynamic that exists that um, students actually don't know, or people, forget it, before they're a college student, perhaps kids growing up just don't have the, the, the access to plug into, here's where the gratuitous use of the term comes, supply mm -hmm. chain of, of, um, of um, both mental health care and drugs and prescription mm -hmm. drugs, and that college kind of, it opens up a bit like a flower and kind of makes it feel like, you know what, okay, now yeah. I feel like there's a place I can go to get some, talk to somebody about it. And oh, by the way, by the way there's a plethora of things I can do from, from a medication perspective to, to address it. Do you think mm -hmm. college serves a purpose of helping provide um, visibility to that supply chain? Again, I want to use that term for mm -hmm. students in college. Well, if I'm understanding kind of the way we're using this, I mean, I, I definitely think that college could be a place to educate people about sort of adult, you know, uh, temptations and vices. I mean, I used to think of college, college is, is awesome. So much good developmental things happen in, in college. So I don't want to keep talking like college is this precarious bummer and <laughs> that it's so risky. It's expensive. Why would I send, you know, my son is only two years old. Why would I send him there? Well, it's because it's great. There's so much good things that happen there too. And I think that colleges are being challenged openly to um, really help foster young adults uh, with safe development. It's not a position that colleges want to be in. Um, this sort of in loco parentis historical role where, you know, once you get out of the home, you're the college's problem or colleges act as parents. I don't think that's an easy position for college to be in when there's so much um, dynamism on campuses. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that colleges could be a very good educative space for students to healthily develop, um, you know, sexual identities, um, healthy habits around sleep, eating, um, I'll say responsible consumption of, of various things, you know, everything in moderation, I guess. Um, and then you mentioned this sort of mental health care and overall concern for wellness and, and sure, um, you know, psychiatric drugs and that that's all part of that. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think you're also right. I sort of embedded within your question. I took this part where, you know, the research shows is that over time, 
uh, at least with things like non-medical prescription drug use of say like Adderall, you know, underclassmen use these things non-medically a lot less than upperclassmen, which makes sense as you're exposed to more and more peers over time. A fourth year student is is going to be much more worldly and um, just just have a lot more perspective and, and may have made choices to dabble here or there because there's there's been more opportunity to do so. So so that happens as well. So I'm going to um, go another direction and just, you know, pose a question and it, it's kind of yeah. a, a follow on to the last question. So um, a couple of podcasts ago, you may have heard it. We did a podcast with a cannabis company, CEO of a cannabis company based here in the Bay Area. Uh-huh. Um, so if I look back at my years in college, um, I roomed with a dude named Steve and he, he was dealing <laughs> weed out of his, my dorm room and it was just, yeah. it was mayhem all the time. Yeah. It's much more organized now. So mm-hmm. do you have any line, you may have no line of sight to it, so, um, and feel free to say that, but um, do you have any line of sight on if, if the legalization in some states of, um, of marijuana um, is, is creating a new kind of a supply chain that students are, fi- are you know, finding accessible? I'm fascinated by this issue. I don't know a lot about this issue and I was a big fan of that podcast. So I'll try to like not repeat the points there. But but yes, I mean, I did see parallels with the expansion of marijuana and sort of the quasi medicalization of it to the students who I interviewed who were non-medical users of Adderall and other you know, stimulant medications, because I would talk to students about, hey, my sort of recruitment flyers, like, is there any drug that helps you? Uh, I want to talk to you about your experiences. I was looking for psychological dependence, academic dependence. I was looking for basically drug use that kind of flipped the script a little bit in terms of usually we think of alcohol, marijuana, other drugs as like congruent to the um, to keeping you in college, congruent to the the noble human capital producing functions of higher ed. You know, your grades generally don't go up if you have an alcohol or drug problem. Um, but Adderall seemed to be completely different. And what happened was I got about, you know, 90% were prescription stimulant users, but several were marijuana users. This actually helps me. And I, I it's not just a recreational drug for me. It is a, um, it's a functional drug. Uh, I don't know if I bought it when I, you know, asked them about it. I mean, <laughs> I would talk to many dudes like Steve um, who said things like, you know, I thought I had a really good in- idea for an engineering project, but when I checked out in the morning, it was really, you know, pretty bad, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, it, but what also happened was I would ask, where did you get the idea to seek Adderall? They said, well, I, you know, and this was at a, a West Coast uh, university where uh, marijuana had the status of being medicalized or, or I guess um, medically available at the time. And it said, well, there were flyers on my car and bulletin boards. And, you know, this idea of doctor shopping came to me not through prescription stimulant seeking, but through this sort of marijuana industry. And that worked both ways where students and I think people get this idea that I can just seek drugs for various conditions and that, you know, kind of like the admissions fraud, you know, you can kind of fake your way into uh, an advent a thing that you perceive to be advantageous. So I saw that a little bit. I, I don't have a lot of comment about the overall economics. I mean, I, I, I have friends who are more in like to drug policies and, you know, overall, you know, I, I, I have opinions. I'm, I'm, I guess, a recovering Californian. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've certainly um, come across my share of dudes in, in my time. But but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea. I just don't know much about the, the burgeoning marijuana supply chain. Hey, Ross, another question that I wanted to ask you about, uh, 
uh, is what are the implications of a broken supply chain in higher education? I've, I've certainly had glimpses of it with other two of my children that have gone for the university and myself when I was in university. So mm -hmm. what are the implications of a broken supply chain uh, in higher education? Well, I, you know, currently there's there's actually a projected shortfall in terms of degree attainment. Um, and there's been studies that, that talk about how the U.S. actually needs more baccalaureate and bachelor's degrees in order to remain economically competitive in the future. This is uh, according to there's a Georgetown Public Policy Initiative where they said that our economy will fall short an estimated 5 million workers by by next year, by 2020. And this is happening in part because baby boomers are retiring, um, but industries are also evolving. Um, the shortfall is, is occurring, especially with, with baccalaureate bachelor's degrees. Uh, I know the state of Tennessee has this drive to 55 initiative, which is 55% of their population. Um, that's their target who should have associate's degrees. And as we talked about before, the, the nature of jobs has also changed. Um, Texas and Tennessee are, are examples of states that have sort of stepped up or in uh, Maryland where there's this this rainy day fund based on corporate in income tax to support higher ed shortfalls. So some states get it um, that, a, that a more educated citizenry with more training, more degrees in their cities, towns and states are, are really good for their long term economic interests. Um, you know, I mean, you got to keep that supply chain moving and working because you know, back to your question, when the supply chain is broken or doesn't work, you know, you do on rare occasions have, have closures of, of small private or, or even larger public universities, such as what's, what's kind of currently happening at the University of Alaska system, which is, is really sad. It could be devastating in the long run to that state's economy and to various communities. You know, you touched on it in an earlier part of this conversation, but mm -hmm. um, who does the supply chain of, edu of education, of higher education, leave out? So I'm thinking in particular admissions. Are there, mm. are there people that are left out of the process? And what is it going to take to get be more inclusive in that sense? Oh, that's a great question. I, I, I don't want to be too repetitive here, but I'm glad you asked. I mean, there's, there's a lot of families who have never had any generation attend college, and, and that's a huge inefficiency. Um, you know, higher ed is by no means perfect, it's very flawed, but, but it's still arguably and with evidence the most reliable vehicle for social mobility that we have. Um, I mean, educational attainment is associated with economic prosperity, earnings potential, quality of life, job and life satisfaction. I mean, with every increasing level of degree attainment, on the whole, people live longer and, and earn more. Um, but the problem is that higher ed has been slow. And you, you asked this question a little bit earlier, but, but I'd say too slow to kind of broaden its reach to those who could really benefit from participating in it. Um, this is underrepresented minority populations who come to mind, students of color. Uh, traditionally, this is defined by US census in, in categories, uh, Native Americans, Latino, Chicano, or Latinx. Uh, students and families, Black or African Americans, and, and then Asian Americans. But of course, if you disaggregate Asian American to various nationality status, you, you do see subgroup differences. Um, I know that many Asian American subgroups are doing quite well, and there's, uh, in fact, lawsuits against Harvard's admissions process over this. Um, this is sort of partly attributed to that model minority myth that's worth dispelling uh, in terms of it applying to a a whole population of Asian American applicants, but but these are all important issues of representation and underrepresentation. That that in terms of who higher education is historically for, meaning you know more affluent families, typically white students and families. Um, but once your family or or community begins to reap the benefits of exposure to higher ed, those benefits can can really be enduring, which is 
why many institutions are rightfully, I think, prioritizing and emphasizing bringing more first-generation students into the fold. And that's an expensive thing. So really, it is some of the um, the more resourced institutions that have the funds to, to do some of this. But there's other programs and opportunities. It's, um, it's a real challenge. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is important because the U.S. Census estimates that white Americans are actually going to be a minority in the United States by the year 2050. Um, you know, higher ed has been historically very efficient at educating white students from middle and upper class backgrounds. But, you know, we have to get better at, and adjust equitability to change uh, these demographics or to, to adjust to these changing demographics. You know, otherwise, you know, who is going to fill these jobs that the economy will need in the future? So, so yeah, so higher ed is becoming more and more difficult for some families to access in large part, um, you know, because it's becoming more and more expensive as well. Um, we talked a little bit about California, but you know, back in the day, the UC system used to be free for all Californians. You know, a lot of public universities to be this way, and this is less and less so every year because state appropriations for higher ed dwindle more and more every year. Um, you know, some of this is because of the projected cost of Medicaid, but you know, also prisons and other public services. You know, these are political issues, but but the beauty of higher ed is that there's this thing called tuition. So of course, when state budgets get tight, as increasingly they do. Um, governors say to, to chancellors, hey, no problem, just raise your tuition. And in fact, that's what's been playing out for, for decades. So, so you now we have this case where you have, you have public institutions that are spending sometimes hundreds of millions of taxpayer and tuition dollars, among other sources, to build things like, you know, like lazy rivers, uh, rock walls, state of the art facilities, you know, and, and also they're paying million dollar salaries to people like football coaches and presidents at public universities, you know, just to compete with other elite institutions. And then you, you know, you need more administrators and more staff for these like mini cities and all, all this compounds to raise tuition more and more and the cost of going to college. So I, I keep coming back that family who, who may have talented, admissible, college-age students who have maybe never been a part of the system before, but believe correctly that this is perhaps a ticket to their lasting prosperity. You know, they're maybe seeing this this rising price tag and they're just thinking, nah, you know, I mean, and that it's sad, but that that does happen. Um, so higher has always been relatively efficient, but only for certain segments of our population. And, and the biggest problem and limitation of its efficiency uh, today, I'd say, is that it's so expensive. So listen, we've th- this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I've learned a ton uh, from talking to you, and I know our listeners will too, about the supply chain of, of higher education. Um, and um, Ross Aikens, we really appreciate you joining us today for um, another edition of Supply Chain. Thank you, Ross. It's been a pleasure. 